Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrindhi Ki Jai, Gaur Premanandi. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Sri Atrocities of King Kamsa, text 31. We don't have a board. I just read myself. Yes? Evam Chetari Bojendra Puragrama Vajadishu Anir Dasham Nir Dashamscha Hani Shamo Javai Shishun Evam Thus Chet If it is so Tarhi, then Boja Indra, O King of Boja, Pura Grama Vraja Adishu, in all the towns, villages, and pasturing grounds, Anir Dishan, those who are less than ten days old, Nir Dishan Cha, and those who are just over ten days old. Hanish Yamaha, we shall kill. Ajya, beginning from today. Vai, indeed. Shishun, all such children. Srila Prabhupada's translation. If this is so, O king of the Boja dynasty, beginning today, we shall kill all the children born in all the villages, towns, and pasturing grounds within the past ten days or slightly more. We'll go on to text 35. The demigods always fear the sound of your bowstring. They are constantly in anxiety, afraid of fighting. Therefore, what can they do by their endeavors to harm you? While being pierced by your arrows, which you discharged on all sides, some of them who were injured by the multitude of arrows, arrows, but who desired to live, fled the battlefield, intent on escaping. Defeated and bereft of all weapons, some of the demigods gave up fighting and praised you with folded hands, and some of them, appearing before you with loosened garments and hair, said, O Lord, 
We are very much afraid of you. When the demigods are bereft of their chariots, when they forget how to use their weapons, when they are fearful or attached to something other than fighting, or when their bows are broken and they have thus lost the ability to fight, your majesty does not kill them. Purport. There are principles that govern even fighting. If an enemy has no chariot, is unmindful of the fighting art because of fear, or is unwilling to fight, he is not to be killed. Kamsa's ministers reminded Kamsa that despite his power, he was cognizant of the principles of fighting, and therefore he'd excuse the demigods because of their incapability. But the present emergency, the minister said, is not intended for such mercy or military etiquette. Now you should prepare to fight under any circumstances. Thus they advised Kamsa to give up the traditional etiquette in fighting and chastise the enemy at any cost. So it says in the seventh canto of the Bhagavatam that those who are not devotees of the Lord haven't any good qualities. And I think we often find such a statement very astonishing. Of course, it's elsewhere that Srila Prabhupada says that non-devotees may have so many good qualities. But what does it mean in the Bhagavatam that those who are not devotees have no good qualities? I mean, we see practically there are many people who are not devotees. And by devotees, I mean in a very broad sense. Someone who worships God, someone who is a theistic person. I don't just mean members of the Hare Krishna movement or even just Gaudiya Vaishnavas or even in, just in the four Sampradayas. But we see that people who have no belief in God, no interest in God, nothing religious in their lives, that they can be truthful, they can be responsible, they can be caring and compassionate, they can be merciful, they can be sacrificing, right? Don't we see that? We see that? Yes. And here even Kamsa is described as having good qualities. That when he was fighting with the demigods, if they became afraid of him, or they didn't want to fight anymore, or they had uh, some reason they weren't engaging in fighting, that he would excuse them. I forgot to ask you, when do we end? 8.30? 8.15? What's your usual time to end? Yeah, around 8.30, but no beyond that. So Kamsa also, in fighting with the demigods, he followed the rules of fighting. Prabhupada says there's principles that govern even fighting. These principles, of course, were that one should fight with an equal. One should fight with an equal and one follows certain codes. And the idea is that if you follow those codes, then who's ever victorious represents dharma. Who's ever victorious represents the truth of protection. You know, each of the different varnas have a different area of protection. So the Brahmins protect the truth and they also fight. They have debates to establish the truth. And the Ksatriyas are supposed to protect the people. So they have fights to determine who is the best protector of the people. And the Vaishas, they're protecting the natural resources and the cows, the animals. So they also have fights to determine who is the best protector of natural resources and animals. It's called competition. There's competition in the marketplace. Who is the best person who can protect? And even the Shudras, who protect all the arts and the skills and the crafts, 
they also have competitions. Who was the best? Who was the best singer? Who was the best rug weaver? And, uh, the best craftsperson in different areas. And in this way, the best is preserved in society. And these competitions are to be according to certain principles. If they're not according to certain principles, then you don't preserve the best in society. And in material world, things tend to degrade. So there has to be some preservation and some uplifting constantly of what is best and what is good. So we find Kamsa followed that in fighting with the demons, and with the demigods rather. He followed that. Let actually the strongest person, let actually the person who is the most chivalrous, who is the best able to protect the citizens, let such a person actually win. Prabhupada says, Ishvara Bhav, and that means the enthusiasm to protect. Ishwara means controller. And we may think, oh, Ksatriya is someone who wants to boss everybody around. Ksatriya is someone who wants to take care of everybody, just like a father. You know, father wants to, a husband and father uh, wants to take care. Why does a man get married? One reason is that he wants to take care of a woman, wants to protect her, wants to give her shelter. Why does a person have children? Just like Prabhupada talks about Krishna. Why does Krishna have the living entities? He wants to take care of them, wants to nourish them. Nowadays, in modern society, people are very selfish. Nobody wants to take care of anything. You know, everybody's just interested in themselves. Why should I get married? Let me just take care of myself. Why bother taking care of somebody else? Why should I have children? I have my own career to take care of. Even in the Hare Krishna movement, we think like that. In the name of Krishna consciousness. Oh, I have my career of service I want to take care of. Why have the botheration of children? And, you know, why have the botheration of taking care of a temple? Let me just take care of myself. So this is the general mentality, and it's increasing more and more and more of this idea of gross selfishness. But anyway, this idea was there that who's the best capable of taking care? So comes to follow these principles. What we find, he didn't always follow them. Just like killing the six children of Devaki. So he certainly didn't follow those principles then. He was killing tiny little newborn babies. There was no Satriya principles. There was no righteousness. There was no Dharma. And now his uh, advisors are telling him again, go and kill little babies. That somebody who's born now is going to kill you, so just kill them first. And kill them when they're a baby. I mean, the king is supposed to be the protector, especially the protector of the weak. The weaker someone is, the more that you're supposed to protect them, obviously, the more they need your protection. But no, kill them. Why? For your own purposes, for your own selfishness. So this is why the Bhagavatam says that devotees have no good qualities. A non-devotee essentially means a person who has at the center of their life, who? Who's at the center of a non-devotee's life? Themselves. Or we could say that's the essential difference between a sura and an asura. A sura has Krishna at the center of their life, and an asura has themselves at the center of their life. So if I have myself at the center of my life, then I'm ultimately trying to please myself. And if I'm ultimately trying to please myself, then my so-called good qualities are just a device. They're a means. So most of us are trained that if we want to get things that we desire, 
if we want to have friends, if we want to get things to enjoy, we can't just be grossly selfish all the time. This is one of the main things we teach our children. Little children tend to be grossly selfish. And we train them, no, you have to share. You have to wait your turn. You have to stand in the queue. You have to do things for others. You have to help out in the household. You have to help out the society. And if you don't do that, you can't get what you want. You have to get an honest means of livelihood. <coughs> so we do that, but we do that, why? Because we realize that if we just simply act like a little, you know, one-year-old or two-year-old, or if we act like an animal, then we won't get anything that we want. We'll be ostracized from society. We know that we depend on other people. We have an interdependence. So we do it as a device. It's not really that a person who has himself at the center is capable of having genuine care for others. It's not, it's not actually possible. However, if you have Krishna at the center, because Krishna includes all living entities, you can have genuine care for others. Because Krishna is Suridam Sarabhutanam. He's the best friend of all living entities. And all living entities are within him. All of the material world is within Krishna. All living entities. So as soon as Krishna is the center, then I can genuinely care about everyone. It can be real. And we see that the people who have themselves at the center that as soon as their own self-interest is served better by having bad qualities than by having good qualities, they'll switch to having bad qualities. And that's exactly what's happening here. Kamsa's friends is saying, you know, when it suited your purposes to have good qualities, you did that, but now it will suit your purpose to display bad qualities. So do that. Their real quality is, what can I get from me? What can I get for me short-term and long-term? And that's all. And to whatever extent one is self-centered, because it's not an absolute this or that. The process of bhakti is gradual and proportional. And Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur describes very nicely in Madhuri Kanambani how we start off with a total self-centeredness and we just have a little tiny trace of Krishna center. You know, we start off with pretty much absolute self-centeredness. And gradually and proportionally, we move out of the center and put Krishna there. It's not that I'm, all, I'm totally in the center, and then one day, poof, totally Krishna's in the center. I'm gradually in the process of bhakti. Of course, you can do it all, all of a sudden if you want to. Prabhupada says it can be a one-minute business if you want to. But generally, gradually and proportionally, one moves out of the center and allows Krishna to take his rightful place there. So to whatever extent I'm in the center, to that extent I will not be able to display absolute good qualities. There'll be a point at which I give them up. Why is Kamsa giving up his good qualities? Because he feels very threatened. He's very, he's very scared. He's such a powerful person, but he was overwhelmed with fear. And he was afraid of a, of a little baby. This baby's going to grow up to be somebody who'll kill me. And he was just terrified. Although he defeated his own father, Ugrasena, although he, as his friends are saying here, he defeated the demigods. 
because he had some faith in this Akashvani, in this sky voice saying, this child will kill you. Being overwhelmed by fear. He wasn't even, he wasn't even going to make a show of having good qualities. I mean, generally, when we display bad qualities in a civilized society, we still pretend that we're having good qualities. We're not usually just sort of, you know, nakedly bad qualities. We, we try to pretend that we're still being nice. But Kamsa here was just out and out, killing babies. Yeah, let's go to the towns, villages, and the pasturing grounds and kill all the children born within the last 10 days or more, like the last 12, 13 days. I mean, with Devaki's children, he killed them in prison, a little out of the public eye at least, although it became known. And here he's going to do it publicly. I mean, just imagine what that would do to your publicity ratings. You know? At least in America, the politicians always have publicity ratings. How much people admire them as a leader. Could you imagine if they went around killing babies, hundreds and hundreds of babies? What would the public think of them? But Kamsa wasn't concerned. He was so overwhelmed with fear that he threw out everything. So that's, you could call, the tipping point for good qualities, is fear. Just like, would, would we all consider that we're honest people? Everybody here, we consider we're an honest person? But are we absolutely honest? And if we think about when do we become dishonest, it's when we're what? Afraid. And when we're afraid that if I'm dishonest, you know, then I won't get something that I need. Right? Yeah, you're not done, right? And he's thinking, I'm even going to hit my mommy if I need to do that to get what I need. So we think like that. Okay, I'll be honest, I'll be honest, I'll be honest, but uh-oh, if I'm honest in this situation, then something terrible will happen. This person won't be my friend anymore, or I won't be able to get into this country, or I might lose all my possessions, or the devotees won't like me anymore, and they'll tell me I can't have any prasadam. No, so then we become dishonest. The tipping point is always fear. Therefore, we also say that progression in Krishna consciousness is a progression of faith. What is that faith? What is the faith? Faith in what? That Krishna will always what? Protect me. That Krishna will maintain me and that Krishna will protect me. One of the two items of surrender. That's what's, we have sometimes strange ideas in the Hare Krishna movement about what it means to be a surrendered devotee. Sometimes we think a surrendered devotee means I have to do something that I don't like and I have to work so many hours that my health breaks or something like that. Uh, surrender means that I see that Krishna is my maintainer and Krishna is my protector. Now, if you've got the biggest, strongest, most intelligent, most caring, most loving, best friend who controls everything, who's protecting you and taking care of you, is there anything to be afraid of? Is there anything to be afraid of? No. Nothing. If there's nothing to be afraid of, and you have full faith, then you have something we call courage. Courage means that even if it's a scary situation, 
you still do the right thing. That even if it's a scary situation, you still do the right thing. Even if it's going to cost you something. Isn't that what we call courage? You're willing to put yourself in danger. You're willing to do something that's frightening or you're willing to face a frightening situation and still do the best and the highest thing without consideration of the consequences. So how can somebody have that courage? And by the way, it's interesting that even the demons admire courage. Demons don't like cowardice. It's quite interesting. Although the essential definition of a demon is that they're a coward. That as soon as they're afraid that their own interests are being harmed, immediately they'll resort to underhanded techniques. Immediately they'll give up doing what's best. But it's quite interesting because demons uh, like things like lust and greed and anger and envy. They think those are very good qualities. As Krishna says, kamashrita, they take shelter of lust, or ahankara ashrita. They take shelter of the false ego. They actually like it. You see materialistic people, they water and fertilize their lust, don't they? They might buy magazines and go to, and spend money on movies and etc., etc., etc. To increase their lust more and more. Don't they do that? Right? They try to fan their greed and their lust and their anger. They like those qualities. But they don't like cowardice, although that's the essential quality that they're under. They're living in a constant state of fear, as Krishna says. They're bound by a network of hundreds and thousands of anxieties. Always worried about something. So if somebody has no fear, if someone is actually fearless, which means one has full faith and full courage, then one has absolute good qualities. Then one will display good qualities in all circumstances. Actually, those good qualities are part of the soul. They are part of our intrinsic nature. And so when we fully are in our natural position with Krishna in the center, we display who we are. Humility means understanding who I am. And all of us happen to be wonderful, wonderful entities. We have the qualities of God in minute degree. And God has all good qualities, and so do we. We have at least 55 of the 64 qualities of Krishna. So when we are who we are, which is connected with Krishna, fully having faith that I'm under Krishna's protection, then we're always wonderful. All the things that we, I'm, I'm sorry to say, loathe about ourselves in conditioned life. You know, we look into our hearts sometimes and go, well, I don't really know if I like myself. We gave a class in Karlovac about how to like yourself. Advertised seminar to the public and we packed the room. <laughs> because generally materialistic people, they don't really like themselves. Because when you're a materialist, you know, deep down inside, that if it really comes to a crisis, I'm not going to be a nice person. I'm a nice person only when it suits my purposes, and when it doesn't suit my purpose, I'm not a nice person anymore. All my good qualities go out the window. And what that point is, of course, depends on 
on how Krishna conscious we are. So hopefully as we keep chanting Hare Krishna, that point gets higher and higher. That it becomes, you know, more and more and more and more rare. Has to be a more and more and more extreme provocation and more and more extreme fearfulness before we give up our good qualities. And eventually we get to a point that there's no circumstance under which we'll give up our good qualities. And Krishna talks about the devotee who relishes and rejoices in the self. Then one can actually relish and rejoice in the self. He uses terms like atmarati. We all know the term atmarama. What does atmarama mean? To take pleasure in the self. Atmatusta, to be satisfied with oneself. We talk about self-realization, God-realization and self-realization. So if Kamsa had done that, if Kamsa had said, actually, I don't need to be afraid of Vishnu. He's my protector. Instead of let me finding out the baby and kill him, let me find out the baby and surrender to him, it would have been a very different story. And he wouldn't have performed, as it says in this chapter, all these atrocities. So how do we build our faith? Just like one of the offenses in chanting is to maintain material attachments, not to have complete faith in the chanting of the Holy Name, and to maintain material attachments, even in spite of having having had so many instructions on this matter. So this is the same kind of mentality. I don't really believe that the Holy Name will give me everything. I don't believe that Krishna is going to take care of everything. I have to have some other attachments also. I have to have Krishna and. You know, I have to do Krishna and meditation on my chakras. I have to do Krishna and getting into, you know, making sure I have a good career. I have to have Krishna and making sure I have enough money in the bank. I have Krishna and making sure that I have a whole lot of knowledge or intelligence. After Krishna and making sure I have proper connections in the Hare Krishna movement so nobody will throw me out. You know, and I'm going to maintain all of those material attachments. I mean, having material attachments isn't a problem. If you don't have material attachments, you don't need to engage in sadhana bhakti at all. You can just engage directly in Raghunuga bhakti and prema bhakti and no problem. We're assuming that all of us have material attachments. Maybe somebody comes to the Krishna consciousness movement and they don't already have any material attachments. I haven't met anybody like that yet, but maybe there's a few. But the problem is maintaining them. As we said, it's supposed to be gradual and proportional. We're supposed to become more and more attached to Krishna and get ourselves out of the center. We're supposed to put Krishna there where he belongs. Uh, therefore, whenever we see circumstances where my faith, my shelter, is in something other than Krishna, then I should make a decision to have shelter in Krishna instead. That doesn't mean I don't do those things. Obviously, I want to eat healthy food, but is eating healthy food my shelter? Obviously, I want to have nice relationships with other people, but is that my shelter? Obviously, I have to have some sort of means of livelihood. Uh, but is that my shelter? So we find that if, we, if every time we notice, okay, I'm taking shelter of my husband, I'm taking shelter of my wife, I'm taking shelter of my children, I'm taking shelter of my devotional career, 
I'm taking shelter of the money I have in the bank. I'm taking shelter of my intelligence or my abilities. I'm taking shelter of the political and hierarchical system of the ISKCON movement. I'm taking shelter of the physical building that I'm in. I'm taking shelter of the government I'm under. I'm taking shelter of some you know, yoga-related techniques. I'm taking shelter of some New Agey-related techniques. Whatever it is. You know, we all think that our false shelters are so much better than everybody else's false shelters. <laughs> you know, like the children playing with the plastic soldiers. My plastic soldiers are better than your plastic soldiers. But they're all plastic soldiers. We think ours are very nice. So when we notice that we have shelter under a fallible soldier, to instead take shelter of Krishna. And when you take shelter of Krishna, you become fearless. Because he's a real shelter. My house isn't a real shelter. I was talking with a devotee recently, who's uh, obviously it's time for her to make some change in her service. She has a really nice offer. You know, her authorities have approved. But she's terrified because she, she'll have to give up her little room in the temple that she's lived in for the last 10 years. And when she knows where her things are, you know, and we laugh, but it's scary to give up your shelter. Because she's not going to have any set place to live. She's not sure, if I do this other service, where will I live? It's scary. And Krishna will keep telling us as we advance in Krishna consciousness, let go of your attachment to this, let go of your attachment to this, let go of your attachment to this. They're all false shelters anyway. It's like uh, swimming in the water. You know, we've seen all these advertisements for the Titanic. I guess the guy who said next to us on the plane told us it's what, like 100 years or something? I don't know anything about this stuff. He was talking to us how, yeah, it's going to be a 100 years anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. So, you know, if your boat is sinking and you're in the North Atlantic freezing cold waters and you're holding on to a little log and a lifeboat comes along, you let go of the log and you get into the lifeboat. You don't get attached to your little log. Oh, but I like this log. It's such a nice log. See how pretty it is. It's not going to save us. And it's our attachment to these things as shelters. Again, not that we can't have them. We're not saying that, you know, we don't live in a house and we don't wear any clothes and we don't eat any foods and we don't have any friends. And we're not saying that. Although that can also be done. There are avadutas who do that. We have examples in the Shastra of avaduta devotees who give up everything. Maharaj Rishabdev or Maharaj Yudhisthira did that at the end or Jad Bharat. There are some examples like that. But it's not required. Uh, we didn't see Srila Prabhupada wandering around naked like an Amadutha. Or even the ghost ones. Uh, they weren't even doing that. Of course, they gave up most things. They just had a couple pieces of cloth and stayed under a tree. But whether one uses these things or not, it's not as a shelter, it's as a service. It's my service to take care of my husband. It's my service to take care of my wife. It's my service to take care of my children. It's my service to take care of the temple. It's my service to be nice to the other brahmacharis. Not as my shelter. Not as the source of my happiness. Not as the source of my protection. 
the source of my happiness, the source of my protection, is only Krishna. Nobody else but Krishna. Nothing else but Krishna, ever. And then one becomes fearless, and only when one becomes fearless can one actually be a sannyasi. And we're all meant, my dear friends, to be sannyasis. Every one of us, even the children, even the women. Not externally, but we're all meant to die to this material world, to our material attachments, to our plastic soldiers. Then there's not even any death. We've already died. What is the question of then being afraid of death? Kamsa was afraid of death because he had so many attachments. He had so many upadis. I'm a this, I'm a king, I have this, and I have this power, and I have this thing. But if you've already died to all of that, what does it matter if you have a physical death or not, which everybody's going to have? Then one is free. Right? Wouldn't we like to be free? Prabhu says in the first canto of Bhagavatam that the need of the soul is freedom. And without freedom, we can't even properly engage in devotional service, frankly. One has to be free of these modes of material nature that say, you're this, you're that, you need this, you need that, you have to have this, you have to have that, these things are what's going to protect you, this person's what's going to protect you. We have to be free of that. And we become free of that in bhakti by performing bhakti. By performing bhakti on an attached platform, we become free of the attachments and then we can enter into the real sweetness of bhakti. Of course, there's some sweetness even when we're attached. Kevalanandakanda, that's the mercy of Mahaprabhu. There's some sweetness even in the beginning stages of bhakti, unlike the yoga ladder, which is pretty much just miserable and austere. But the ultimate sweetness, anandam bhudivarinam, an unlimited ocean of sweetness. If we want to dive into that unlimited ocean of sweetness, we're not going to swim in it with our boots on and our winter coat on. We're not going to swim in it with rocks in our pack. We have that little book in our series, Rocks in My Pack. If you've got your backpack, your rucksack, all full of rocks, how are you going to swim in the unlimited ocean? can't do it. So we have so many fears. Well, if I give up my attachment to my wife, I won't take nice care of her. No, you'll take nicer care of her. <laughs> if you're attached to your wife, then when she treats you nicely, you're nice to her. And when she doesn't treat you nicely, you get frustrated. But if you're not attached, if you're taking care of your wife as a service, if your attachment is to Krishna, then you take care of your wife when she's nice to you and she's not nice to you. I haven't yet met the wife who's always nice to her husband. Or the husband who's always nice to his wife. Or the children who are always nicely behaved. I haven't met such a person. It's not like that. <laughs> no? If we think of, uh, you know, everything we do, there's sometimes it's nice, sometimes it's not. Sometimes taking care of our house is pleasing, sometimes it's not pleasing. Sometimes living with the devotees is pleasing, sometimes it's not pleasing. Sometimes living in a particular country is pleasing, sometimes it's not pleasing. I'm sure there's lots of advantages to living in Ireland, and I'm sure there's disadvantages to living in Ireland. It's just the way it is. 
And if we're attached and we're doing things for our own sense gratification, thinking this is my shelter, this is my source of everything, then sometimes we'll be able to behave properly and sometimes we won't. And then we're disappointed with ourselves. Oh, why did I behave like that? Why did I act like that? But if I become attached to Krishna, and Krishna is my shelter, and everything I'm doing, I'm doing as a service for my beloved Lord, and He's taking care of me. I'm taking care of my children to make Krishna happy. And then even if my children are hitting me because I don't give them the toy that they want, I don't become frustrated because I'm trying to please Krishna. And then it doesn't matter how much botheration there is in life. It's our service for Krishna. We don't then choose things by how pleasing it is to me or not because that's not where my pleasure is coming from. It's coming from my relationship with Krishna. And then I can really be the person that I want to be. I can really be the person, in fact, that I am. We are all wonderful people. We are all people who will be also in love with ourselves. Atmarati means to be in love with the self. Interesting concept. So if we want to be that kind of person, the way we fall in love with ourselves, ironically, is to forget ourselves and fall in love with Krishna. Like even Jesus said, those who want to find their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. We cannot become the person we want and really like ourselves and be satisfied with ourselves if we put ourselves at the center because we're not in the center. It's not who we are. That's a false self we're in love with then, not a real self. The real self just isn't in the center. You know, that's devastating for the false ego. You mean my real self isn't actually in the center? I thought that's where I was. But it's not. We're not even in the center to our friends and family, I hate to tell you this. If you want to find out whether or not we're the center of our friends and family, take someone who really likes you and ask them if they're willing to listen for one hour to all the details of what you did yesterday. And find out how much we're in the center. My dear best friend, let me tell you exactly what I did yesterday. Please sit and listen attentively for an hour. It's hard to have anybody listen attentively to what we did for five minutes. But we can be very attentive to what Krishna did. That's actually interesting. That's actually attractive. And what we do in relationship to Krishna is also attractive. So I'm not the center. Frankly, I'm not even the center for myself. How much am I even interested in what I did yesterday? Do I really care? But Krishna's the center. I mean, seriously, could you imagine keeping a diary of every single little thing you didn't say? Would you eat it? It would be really boring. We're not the center. It's not who we are. We're never going to like ourselves and be satisfied with ourselves in the center. And we're just liking a false self. And then we have to do all these things that we don't even like to keep ourselves in a false position. Out of fear. I have to end up being a person I don't even like. How foolish. Why not actually love Krishna? which then automatically means, guess what? I will love myself. And then I will have full courage. And then I will have full faith. 
And then everything I'll do, just like everything Krishna does is wonderful, then everything the pure soul does is also wonderful. They never do any atrocities. You won't find any, you know, atrocities of the great devotees. So this is our process of Krishna consciousness. And therefore we say it's an offense to the name to maintain our fallible soldiers. If we're going to Krishna, we're saying, Krishna, I want to surrender you. Krishna, I want to surrender you. Krishna, I want to surrender you. But I'm keeping this other thing too. It's disturbing. Just like each of us knows something. Each of us has some expertise. That was the previous purport, being expert. So each of us has some sort of expertise. So somebody probably says everyone has some extraordinary talent. Is to use our extraordinary talent in Krishna's service as the perfection of life. So if somebody came to us and said, I would like to learn from you in your area of expertise, whatever it is, making japatis or making flower arrangements or planting marigolds, whatever it is we're really good at, I'd like to learn from you how to do this. But if when they come, they're just, you know, texting on their phone, or they come later, they're distracted in some way, it's not very pleasing. So we're coming to Krishna. Krishna, please, I want to be under your shelter. I want you back in the center. I want to become who I really am. Oh, but I want to maintain my false self also at the same time. So he's going to feel hurt. He's going to feel offended. Aparada actually means against Radharani. Basically, Radharani is going to say, hey, you're not treating my beloved very nicely. Because when we take shelter of Krishna, who's taking care of us? The Mahatmas are under whose care? Radharani. Just like if, when the father protects the family, who's doing a lot of the care for the children? The mother. So when we're under Krishna's protection, then Radharani's taking care of us. She doesn't really like it if we say we're under Krishna's protection, if we say we're taking shelter of Krishna, if we're going, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, 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 and in our heart we're going, Maya Devi, Maya Devi, Maya Devi. You know, it should be just the opposite. Like Rupa Goswami talks about the woman who has another lover besides her husband. So it should be externally to the world. It may look that we have Maya shelter. We may have a job or a business or a family or we're even having a farm here. People may say, well, you're part of the world. But actually, our real beloved is Krishna. Not the opposite. Not that we look like we're devotees of Krishna, but actually our real shelter is an illusion. So therefore, at least as soon as we become aware as soon as our consciousness clears and we can see, oh, I have this false shelter, oh, I have this false shelter, then immediately say, no, Krishna, I'm going to take shelter of you. I'm going to take shelter of you. And then our progress in Krishna consciousness will be very fast. So, thank you very much. Questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions, chastisements. Oh, false ideas of surrender? 
Well, one false idea of surrender is I have to do something. I have to not enjoy my service. That if I enjoy my service, that's not surrender. I was thinking about where that comes from. I think where it comes from is that in an emergency, you have to do things that are not your nature. That's what it means. I have to do something that I don't normally do, that I may not be very good at, uh, that I don't like very much, etc., etc. And emergencies have a kind of, how would we put it, adrenaline rush to them. When there's an emergency situation, you have this sort of surge of energy. Isn't that a fact? Right? And you have a mood of sacrifice. So we may think that that sort of inrush of energy one feels in an emergency situation is transcendental bliss. And we might think, oh, if I just did this all the time, then I would be surrendered. So I was thinking that's where that false idea comes from, that basically living in a state of emergency is indicative of surrender. But that's not what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita in the third chapter and the 18th chapter, he says, Arjuna, you have your nature. You're not going to be able to give up your nature. You can't repress your nature. The question is, are you going to do it for me or are you going to do it for illusion? So real surrender means doing who I am, what I am in this life, using my upadis for Krishna. If I try to do somebody else's work for Krishna, that's like donating someone else's car to the temple. I, I actually can't do it. If I say, oh, my dear Radhika I'm going to give you my neighbor's car. I can't give him my neighbor's car. It's not mine to give. I have to give Krishna my car. I have to give Krishna my nature. My, I can't give Krishna somebody else's nature. It's false. Also, if you try to do someone else's nature for a long time, you'll become exhausted. You'll get worn out. I mean, emergencies may give you some rush of energy, but they wear you out. You can't keep doing it. And really, emergencies should be a very rare situation. They should be genuine emergencies. I mean, emergencies should happen maybe two or three times a year, maybe. Prabhupada talks about emergency duties, ordinary duties, and desired activities. So our main work, our ordinary work, should be according to our nature. And the desired activities are not something necessarily that we do every day or something that other people expect us to do, but something I like to do for Krishna. You can think of one of them as your vocation and one of them as your hobby. So we should have some Krishna conscious hobbies also. So our nature relates to our gender, our age, and our propensities, our talents. Our ashram is generally related to age. Generally, when you're little, you study. When you're in youth, you're married. When you're in middle age, you're retired. And when you're in old age, you're renounced. Generally. With the rare person who's able to be happy and balanced in renunciation in youth. So that's nature. And then there's gender. We have different duties and different propensities, whether we're male or female. And then we have different 
I said, Prabhupada said everyone has some extraordinary talent. We have something, something that when we do, we feel energized and alive. So that, that surrender is offering that to Krishna. At least that's how Krishna defines surrender in the Bhagavad Gita. So I would like to define surrender the way Krishna defines surrender than another way. And often we think, you know, when we have a particular project and a small amount of human resources, that we have to have everybody in an emergency situation in order to get things done. And that may be true occasionally. But the interesting thing is that if you engage people according to their nature, you'll get a lot more people because it will be a lot more attractive. First of all, the people there will be happier, and when they're happier, other people will say, I want to be happy like you. <laughs> I'm reading now Mukundamaraj's book, Miracle on uh, Second Avenue. And I'm just, right now, where he's establishing the temple in San Francisco. And now people would just come forward and offer their nature. People would just knock on the door. We're artists. What can we do? Oh, you can paint a sign. They don't say, oh, you're an artist. Can you clean the floor? Oh, you're an artist. Can you make a sign? Oh, we're a musician. Oh, can you play in the band? And people, they, we, we all want to do that. That's sacrifice. It's sacrifice of who and what I am. I can't sacrifice you. I can only sacrifice me. Is that all right? Yes, all right. But sometimes, you know, uh, everybody wants to obey nature, and some things they not done, and somebody has to do it, you know, like, for example, clean, you know? Well, everybody has to clean. <laughs> Doing things that according to your nature doesn't mean you're going to like all aspects of them also. That's never the case. So you may like taking care of children. That doesn't mean you like it when they vomit at 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't like going through the security lines at the airports and having them take my shoelaces out of my bed. Okay, I don't like that. It's not that you're going to like every aspect of your service. That's never the case. And all of us have, as part of our ordinary duties, we've got to clean our body, you know, You've got to clean your body, you've got to clean your clothes, you've got to clean your room, you've got to clean the place where you're staying. I mean, everybody has to do that. Just like there's some, you know, if you go to Vrindavan today, we, we've had experience that people from the, you know, who are born Brahmanas, they won't clean anything. They have a very interesting conception of being a Brahmana. No, I'm a Brahmana, I don't clean. And especially they won't clean the toilet. So, you know, you go to this, this house of a so-called Brahmana and the toilet's like... You go to take a bath in the bathroom and you feel like you're getting dirty just breathing the air. So everybody has to clean. But then there's also our spiritual duties. Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, Svarnam. So we all have some basic duties as sadhakas. So Prabhupada says you can perform the nine processes according to your taste, but we all have some minimum. We all have at least 16 rounds minimum. All of us are expected to engage somewhat in the worship of the deity, at least by coming to the programs and singing for the deities. So certain things that everybody's expected to do, just like everybody's expected to brush their own teeth. So we have certain minimal things that everybody does. And then beyond that is according to our nature. 
And if we don't have enough people to do something, be careful about putting somebody in an emergency situation long term. It's actually violence to that person. Sometimes, yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I've learned as I've gotten older is that it's not that everything needs to get done and that doing things is not what it's about at all. It just isn't. It's not what life is about. It's not what bhakti is about. It's not even materially what things are about. It's just not. It really doesn't matter. I used to have a physical in-basket and periodically I'd go through the whole thing and always I'd find something at the bottom that had expired. You understand? You know what it expired is? It was, it, I couldn't do it anymore. The time had passed. It, it had a certain date that it had to be done by and I'd forgotten about it and I hadn't gotten to it and it didn't get done. I mean, I have a list of things that I would like to do. Some of them are never going to get done. What do I want to do? Take birth again to do them? Prabhupada left this world in the middle of translating Bhagavatam. He did. We didn't think he would. Most of us didn't think Prabhupada was going to leave because he hadn't finished the Bhagavatam. How could he possibly leave with something unfinished? But he did. Prabhupada left before the Juhu temple was opened. It's much more important that we fall in love with Krishna than that we get a lot of things done. I mean, some basic things have to get done. Don't think like that, please. Obviously, we have some service for the deity, and we have some service for Prabhupada and for the mission. Jiva Goswami says that if we chant inattentively, we'll start measuring our bhakti by our external accomplishments. So, please be careful. I mean, look, I'm a very enthusiastic doer kind of person, so you don't, all don't know me very well. So you might just think I'm a lazy bum, but I'm not. But I'm learning that that's not what Krishna consciousness is. Krishna consciousness isn't having 20 pages list of my accomplishments. It's not what it is. It's a relationship of love. Now, if I love somebody, naturally I want to do things for them. Is that all right? Should we take any more questions? It's now 8.35. Should I stop now or should we have more questions? More questions. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Um, when we have to um, face our bad qualities, it can be like a very overwhelming experience. Like one can easily get very depressed or morose about you know, the side of, of what we have to face. That's because you don't let go of them, you just keep looking at them. That's all. 
Like if you look under your bed and you see dirt, do you just stay there looking at it? Or do you get rid of it? So if you just stay there looking at it, it's going to be depressing. If you get rid of it, it's going to be liberating. So not just that you see it. It's not that you go, oh my God. They don't do, Krishna, I don't actually want it anymore. You don't do that. You don't just go, no, I don't really want it. That's not getting rid of it. Getting rid of it is looking at this and go, I have been wanting this. I want this right now. I am holding on to this now. I am responsible. Not that, oh, oh, there's pride. No, I don't want pride. Who said I want to pride? Of course I don't want pride. I'm a good devotee. I don't like pride. That doesn't work. Have you tried that? That these things come up and you just kind of push them away and then they come back? Have you noticed that? No, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. It's not like that at all. It's looking at it and saying, I want this. Owning it. I have this bad quality as my shelter. Look at it and, and become disgusted with it and go, not disgusted with yourself, become disgusted with the quality and go, ugh. Why am I holding this? Personnel! And let go. He is the one who cleanses. I actually can't clean it. But I can give him permission to clean. If I say, no, I don't really want that, that's not giving him permission to clean. That's like saying, no, there, aren't, there isn't really dust under my bed. And yes, there's a few moments of angst. That's required. Don't fear that. If I've offended you, let's say I've really offended you, okay? All right? Everybody have somebody who's really offended them? So if that person wants to reestablish their relationship with us, don't they have to face what they did wrong? Isn't that part of it? Can they skip that step? But what if they don't think that what they've done is wrong, Andrew? It's our, um, it's our judgment of what... Well, but we're dealing with Krishna, so this is an analogy. Okay. So with Krishna, he's totally right and we're totally wrong, which we have a hard time accepting just that idea. But let's accept that, just that idea, at least in theory. Okay. Even if you can't, even if your heart goes, what? Not me. Like there's this one person new to, new to Krishna consciousness. That was, uh, when I was talking about envy, and she talked to me afterwards, she said, but I don't have any envy. And I just said, oh, that's nice. I, di- I didn't feel it was my job to try to convince her at this stage of her, in her bhakti. <laughs> because I knew I wouldn't be successful anyway, and I would just damage her. So let's just assume right now, in theory, just as a concept, that Krishna is completely right and I'm completely wrong. That my entanglement and illusion is 100% my responsibility. Let's just have that as a construct. And that my entanglement and illusion offends Krishna. It hurts his feelings. If I give you everything, 
and you turn around and try to usurp my position, I'm going to feel hurt. Right? Haven't you had anybody that you gave a whole lot to and then they turned against you? Haven't we, have we all had people like this? Yes? No? We're sleeping? I'm boring you? Have you had people like this? Yes? Yes. Have you? Yes. 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 Okay. How does that feel? It hurts. So Krishna's unlimited bliss, but Prabhupada says he feels some disturbance at the rebellious living. It's painful. And it's interesting. Krishna doesn't stop giving us everything, by the way, like I might do. But if we want to reestablish our relationship with him, we have to admit our fault. We have to see our fault for what it is. Just like if somebody really offends me, that's part of reestablishing the relationship with me. I'm not going to reestablish my relationship with someone who's really offended me or really cheated me unless they understand what happened. It's just it's what's required. I may establish it on some level, but not really. I mean, what I'm looking for is the person had to say, wow, you know, when I stole that money from you, it really hurt your feelings. I, I had somebody who went behind my back and criticized me to others, even lying about me, and then contacted me and said, I hope you're doing okay. How are you doing? I said, you shoot me and then you ask me how I'm doing? What is that? Why? Hold on. Oh, how are you doing? I'm your friend. I'm like, I said, you're not my friend. I said, no, a friend doesn't do that to somebody else. So we can't just go to Krishna and say, hi, Krishna, I'm your friend. He's going to say the same thing. He's going to say, you shoot me and then I'm your friend. What kind of friend is that? He shoot you? I, I never did that. So we have to see it. And that's painful. We will feel something called shame. Which is, by the way, the most painful thing to feel. There's nothing more painful than shame. We'll feel shamed. But we're not going to feel ashamed in isolation. It's not that we're just going to be in our room feeling ashamed. We're sitting next to Krishna, feeling ashamed that we hurt the most loving, most wonderful person. So with that shame is coming love. And as soon as we feel that, he's going to show us his love. We'll feel his love also. So it'll also be filled with sweetness. It's like if you're, if you're embracing your good friend and crying at the same time and saying, I'm so sorry I hurt you. I'm sure we've all experienced that too, that we've gone to someone that we've hurt and we're crying and we're saying, I can't believe I hurt you like that. I'm so sorry. Now I actually understand what I did. I, I, I had a very interesting experience where one very dear devotee, one very dear friend of mine, was telling me for years how I was doing something that was upsetting. And I didn't get it. You understand? This person was saying, Oh, no, when you do this and this and this, it's very disturbing to me. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. I would just say, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. But I didn't... You, you understand? 
I didn't really understand it. So then years later, somebody did to me what I had been doing. And even then, it took me a few months to figure out, oh, this is the same thing I did. I didn't recognize it at first. I just thought, why is this person annoying me so much? Why, not, why aren't they treating me in such a, an inconsiderate, disrespectful manner? Why can't they even treat me with a basic you know, human consideration? And I would say to the person, you know, if I tell you not to call me after nine at night, then please don't call me after nine at night. But it was important. I said, actually, it wasn't important. Please don't call me after nine at night. And they wouldn't get it. And after a few months of that, I realized, oh, that's what I did. I did exactly that thing. And then I can understand how painful it was on the receiving end. You follow? Because I was getting it. And I knew how, how disturbing it was. And I went to my friend, I my dear friend. And this friend was aware of what I was going through with this other person, by the way. I said, now I understand. Now I know what actually I was doing and why it was disturbing you so much. And I felt a lot of shame. I said, I can't believe I was treating you like that. I am so very sorry. I wasn't saying I was sorry to get my relationship back. I wasn't saying I was sorry to manipulate the other person. I was just saying I was sorry because I was actually, genuinely sorry. And it was up to the other person how they wanted to respond. It wasn't like little children, you know. One child hits their brother over the head with their toy fire truck and so you take the toy fire truck away and they want it back and you say, well, say you're sorry. And they go, I'm sorry. You know, usually when we say we're sorry, it's like that. Oh boy, I'm not supposed to offend devotees, and if I offend devotees, then terrible things will happen. So I'm sorry, people. I'm sorry, people. You know, and we've never empathized with the, what they're going through. We don't have any depth of realization. We're just trying to cover ourselves. Same thing I talked about in the beginning. But when you genuinely feel sorry in relationship to another person. Just doing that is reestablishing your relationship with that person. Therefore, it's also very sweet. Even if you're crying, even if you're feeling shame, it's shame mixed with joy and affection. Because why are you feeling bad? Not out of pride. Usually we see a bad quality and we just feel shame because we're so prideful. Oh, I thought I was a great person, and look, I actually have this problem. But when it's with Krishna, we're feeling that out of love for him. That I have hurt you, I have damaged my relationship with you. And really, I want to love you. And that's a very, very, very sweet and beautiful thing that brings us this kind of joy that's very hard to talk about even. I think it's Drupa Goswami who says, you know, is love nectar or poison? So it's something like that. So if you either look at our, if we either look at our bad qualities in terms of our pride, then it's just, it's just pain. It's just simply pain. And so we don't want to look at our bad qualities. And if I look at my bad qualities and just keep looking at them and forget that the whole reason I'm looking at them 
is so that I can have my relationship with Krishna. That's also painful. But if I look at them in terms of, of some grief at the relationship, it's not about me. It's not about me at all. It's about my relationship with Krishna. And I'm trying to get something out of the way between my relationship with Krishna so I can please Krishna. And if I get it out of the way and I please Krishna, then that's wonderful. And then one is so joyful. Just like we've all felt joy at reestablishing a relationship with another person in this world. If they've offended us or we've offended them. Haven't we all experienced that? Sure we have. It's a wonderful thing. So because we're the one who's broken the relationship and because our bad qualities are symptoms of having broken the relationship, we have to deal with them. But we shouldn't be dealing with them to deal with them. We should be deal with, dealing with them to establish our relationship. This isn't the International Society of Getting Rid of Your Artist Consciousness. Because we want our relationship with Krishna, therefore we have to acknowledge these things and ask him to remove them. Does that make sense? And then they're not painful. They're really not. There, there's a few moments of pain. That's a fact. But they're not painful. They're the, they're the door to joy. So I've definitely gone much, much, much too long. Thank you very much. If I've said anything that offended any of you or that you don't want to take on board, please just ignore it. And hopefully I've said at least a few things that are useful and relevant to you. Shri Mad Bhagavatam Ki Jai, Shri Mad Bhagavatam Ki Jai.